This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 229 of The Bugle with me, Andy Zaltzman, the five-time European misremembering champion. Or was it 800-metre freestyle champion? Yeah, no, it was that. <laughs> Live in London, the host city in 1666 of the short-lived British Bakery Burning Championships. Big win for the Peterborough Pyromaniacs in that only ever uh, staging of that event. Um, and joining me from a city that has had three great fires in its repertoire, according to Wikipedia, uh, 1776, 1835 and 1845, uh, that, of course, fire fans, is New York. It's the fire starter of funny, the conflagrator of comedy, the pyro of persiflage, the one-man inferno of irreverence who will burn his barbs on the barbecue of badinage, the satirical scorcher himself, John, the flaming aubergine Oliver. Andy, no one likes these uh, linguistic pyrotechnics more than I do as an introduction, but at some point you're going to run out of words. There is a a finite time in which you can do this. Yeah, but John, I'm 38 and I don't live a particularly healthy lifestyle, I reckon. Good point. That is what's covered you. (laughs) Uh, Andy, I had a uh, photo. I had to do a photo shoot yesterday for GQ magazine. And nothing about that. Had yeah. to. Did you, did you yeah. have to, John? <laughs> no, nothing about that sentence should be surprising to anyone. It's a natural match, Andy, because when you think of the name John Oliver, the first thing you think is probably menswear. <laughs> and at one point, Andy... Uh, menswear, John, I think you just misread that. <laughs> I think it was a horribly misbooked <laughs> event. Uh, at one point during the morning, there was a fitting where I was trying on a suit that cost the amount that you would usually spend on something you'd expect to be able to drive. And the, st- <laughs> the stylist looked up at me, look- looked up and down and said, hmm, that suit looks really good on your calves. <laughs> and that's a big reach, Andy. That's essentially like saying that suit doesn't look good on most of you. Because <laughs> if you're going all the way down to calves, you literally have nowhere else to go. Uh, oh, John, that's a very negative way of looking at it. Maybe uh, yeah? your fitter was just working upwards from your feet, and that's as far as they could get before being overwhelmed no, by the magnificence no, of it. No, no, because the thought process, Andy, is does it look good on your chest? No. On your arms? <laughs> Certainly not. On any of your torso? Not that I can see. How about thighs? Not good, I'm afraid. Ankles? It's not really on his ankles. How is it on his calves? It's fine. So that's it, Andy. <laughs> I'm going to be a calf model for high-end high end menswear. I'm going to be the Linda Evangelista of the lower leg. <laughs> it does sound like they might have just been trying to uh, talk you into uh, showing a bit of top, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't need to talk, Andy. Just, just point. Uh, on the subject of those great New York fires, the uh, one in um, 1835 was described in a magazine called uh, The Gentleman. Um, and... Uh, that magazine wrote, in the midst of this terrible visitation, it is consolatory to see the elastic energy of the people. Instead of wasting their time in despondency over this frightful desolation, the whole population seems on alert to repair the mischief. Mischief, John. That was uh, <laughs> that is a, a quality 19th century understatement yeah. for a massive yeah. fire Very that burned good. down a large part of Manhattan. <laughs> and the 1845 fire began in a whale oil store 
in yes. uh, southern Manhattan. Now, um, do, you, do they still have those in uh, New York now? Do you, um, do you I'm get sure to a lot of, they do. do you, where, where it's do a pretty weird your, city. Yeah. Where do you get your whale oil from, John, these days? Well, I, I mean, I don't... I've never got any, but I definitely right. expect to be able to get it at any point yeah. during the 24 hours of a day, Andy. That's what New York's all about. If I want whale oil <laughs> at 4.30 in the morning, I should be able to get it. Did GQ not, like, give you some for your, you know, as a facial pack for your... Do you know what? I, I did rub... Structure. I did rub whale oil on my calves. Maybe that's why this thing <laughs> looks so good. You could just keep your own bonsai whale in the bath and lipo sucked it every few days. Good point. Uh, this is Bugle 229, and uh, ironically, it's 229 years since 1784 when the Treaty of Paris was ratified, ending the American War of Independence and formally acknowledging the United States to be a sovereign, independent uh, Boo. nation. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> and, um, Betrayal! One of the uh, the dudes in the uh, US delegation the previous year that hammered out that deal was little Benji Franklin, uh, banknote pinup, mullet pioneer, and general all-round whiz kid who proved throughout his extraordinary life exactly what a human being can achieve when he doesn't watch telly or surf the internet. Uh, <laughs> he did uh, an incredible range and amount of things. And in that year, 1784, uh, he was the inventor of bifocal glasses, possibly because he spent so much time during the treaty negotiations with one eye on what he was reading and the other eye on the British delegation on the other side of the table to see whether or not they were giggling. Uh, (laughs) He also invented the uh, flexible urinary catheter, Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) Uh, Possibly because uh, when the English delegation saw what the Yanks were demanding, uh, one of them said, mate, you're taking the piss. And Franklin thought to himself, hang on, there might be something in that. who knows? Probably not. He actually invented it uh, about 30 years before then. Anyway, but the point stands. Uh, as always, a section of the Bugle is going straight in the bin. This week, it's an audio cookery tips supplement, including how to tell when the oil in your pan is just right for deep frying. Ah! Ah! Put the tempura in now, love. Ah! How to peel an unusually large carrot. And how to tell when you've put too much chilli in your children's food. (laughs) That section in the bin. Top story this week. Cyprus is far... I mean, it is fucked. Cyprus, Andy, is the sunny Mediterranean island of 1.1 million people where, for the last few decades, hard-working British people have gone on vacation to vomit in the streets. It's one of the smallest members of the EU, a sleepy little place, but it might want to consider waking the fuck up right now because it's currently in the middle of a financial nightmare. Uh, The EU has seen some financial shitstorms over the last half a decade, but Cyprus may be about to unleash a fiscal tornado so huge that we may wake up having landed on a witch and (laughs) dancing down the road with a talking lion, a scarecrow, and a weird squeaky guy with a metal face. God, reminds me of my stag night. (laughs) This this all began last weekend when Cyprus agreed a bailout deal with European authorities and the IMF. So far, so... Tolerable. <laughs> next, thing, next thing you know, Cypriots are 
protesting in the streets and all the financial institutions are closed in fear of a full-scale It's a Wonderful Lifestyle run on the banks, but without a friendly Jimmy Stewart to calm everyone the f*** down. <laughs> no, Stavros, you've got it all wrong. Your money's not here. It's in Constantina's house and Ibrahim's house and a hundred others. I beg of you not to do this thing. <laughs> so how did this happen? Cypriots are a warm, friendly people, as long as you don't mention Turkey in conversation with them. <laughs> and for people to nearly riot on that s- scale, you'd need to mention Turkey both extremely loudly and a lot. <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, it is kind of fascinating. Uh, another kind of chapter in the uh, exciting sequences of European bailouts, of course, began with the Here Goes Nothing 2008 campaign. Then the vomiting good money after bad tour of 2009 and the fingers crossed (laughs) it can't get that much worse, surely, of 2011. The problem is Cyprus was apparently doing quite well for a bit, even after the uh, financial (laughs) shit tornado had kicked off uh, in other parts of Europe, had good growth, low unemployment. But by 2011, they'd reached the stage where uh, Cyprus's bank's combined assets were worth eight times the annual national income, which sounds quite handy until you realise that those assets were almost entirely pretend, uh, <laughs> largely made up of loans that they'd made to places like Greece, which had oh! no money oh! to pay those loans back. Oh, so, uh, Greek, Greek debt, Andy, as we all know, is a spicier debt. That is one messy money moussaka. <laughs> so when the financial plates got smashed at the wedding between Greece and bankruptcy, uh, Cyprus was, le- was left with a fraction of the pretend money that it was kidding itself that it actually had. And uh, a bailout was needed. And the way the Cypriot government decided to go about these things was by essentially punishing the victims of the economic disaster. Um, <laughs> because they, they came up with this scheme to tax people's savings. Now, I know around Europe recently, John, there's been a sense that people should, uh, that the people responsible should be made to pay. And maybe there was a bit of a language barrier issue, but the Cypriot government misinterpreted this as the uh, as it should be the people who have been responsible being made <laughs> to pay. And they tried to raid people's savings. They're now having to come up with a plan B after the public called bullshit in a fairly major and vocal way on plan A. Um, so uh, it's... I don't know, I'm not an economist, John, but as you said, the little Mediterranean island has jumped aboard the bonkers bailout bandwagon, calling it Athens, Dublin, Madrid, Lisbon, and all stations to Fisk Oblivion Parkway. <laughs> but basically, the plan was all bank depositors with over $130,000 in their accounts would immediately get just under 10% of that confiscated, and smaller accounts would get around a 6.75% confiscation. It was to be called a one-off upfront stability levy. But, uh, <laughs> Lovely euphemism. People, yeah, isn't it great? But the people of Cyprus seem to see it as a one-off gigantic f*** you. <laughs> so, to be fair, the depositors would have got shares in the Cypriot banks in return. But, to be even fairer, (laughs) those shares would be completely worthless if those banks then went under. So, to prevent a run on the banks, all Cypriot banks have been shut and are unlikely to open until next Tuesday to try and prevent mass withdrawals. And all Cypriot bank managers are currently hiding inside the linings of their sofas. Uh, There have been long lines forming at uh, ATMs, but cash in them has been rapidly running out. And... Cyprus seems to have essentially reached a fork in the road, Andy. Quickly renegotiate a solution which is satisfactory to no one 
or go full Mad Max. <laughs> get some motorbikes, get some crazy outfits with spikes on the collar, and just go f- crazy and i honestly think people there are 50 50 on which way to go at the moment well uh chris has just broken some exciting news to me uh that his parents live in cyprus yeah oh they do they do they're they're in england at the moment they're going back on sunday and bit by bit they're taking the towels and the clothes out the bag and throwing dollars and sterling into the suitcase (laughs) instead it'll only take a couple of bags to like literally be able to save the country if the bailout goes through and uh it's it's like 10 billion euros worth of bailout that basically one of your parents is going to be owned by Germany. Yeah. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Um, I, I'd like to say that I'd be proud of them. And I think it's, <laughs> yeah. an important, it's an important thing for, for my dad, I think, to just front up and accept that, that, he is now that German, he's now German owned man. by Angela Merkel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I t- Chris, he should feel nicked so good about that. <laughs> Such a beautiful language. Schlecht. Um, perhaps, perhaps unsurprisingly, Cyprus's parliament rejected this whole proposition on Tuesday with zero votes in favour. Zero. It's not easy to get zero votes for anything, Andy. Usually you'll get one person vote for something, even if it's just because they think it will be funny. But... <laughs> Zero votes. That takes an almost impressive ability to piss literally everyone off. (laughs) So why did the European Bank try to go in so hard on Cyprus all of a sudden? Well, part of the reason seems to be the bank accounts themselves, because of the estimated 68 billion euros in total held in Cypriot bank accounts, about 40% belongs to foreigners, and not just Chris's parents. Most of them are thought to be Russians. And at first, that seems a little bit weird. Then, that seems a little bit suspicious. And then after that, it only seems suspicious. Because (laughs) the widespread belief is that much of that money is at best dirty, and at worst, so laundered that it basically now qualifies as clothing. Uh, (laughs) if, If it's that dodgy, that it has to be laundered through Cyprus... When that is, I mean, if they if they if they're too ashamed of it, even to plough it into a football club, I mean that that really <laughs> puts that in perspective. <laughs> a leaked report from the German Foreign Intelligence Service suggested that uh, the main be- beneficiaries because of this from any eurozone bailout of Cyprus would be Russian oligarchs, businessmen, and mafiosi, <laughs> and that is that is thought to be the key reason why savers with money in Cyprus have been put into this horrendous situation. <laughs> John, John, was that, were they three different categories? <laughs> I think they're just three sides of the Russian personality. Uh, but it's it's worth noting that of all the groups in the world that you want to avoid pissing off, Russian mobsters are right up there at number one. And Russia itself has come out strongly against this plan. Uh, President Vladimir Putin, a man who, shall we say, wears the cologne of the corruption in extremely heavy squirts. Uh, he... <laughs> He, he has. He's described the. I'm glad you like that. Yeah, very, very nice. Very nice. He, he described the plan as unfair, unprofessional, and dangerous. Although, to be fair, that's basically also a description of himself. So, so much that it would function pretty well for him as a dating profile. Man, unfair, unprofessional, and dangerous seeks woman late teens with an ability to keep her mouth shut for sexy business. Uh, <laughs> 
And it didn't stop there. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev warned that Russia may be forced to correct its relationship with Cyprus if the levy should go into effect. And it's that kind of threat, Andy, <laughs> that kind of chilling Russian threat that will get a bill zero votes on the floor of a house. <laughs> oh, this is such a beautiful island. It would... Uh, Give me such pain to be forced to correct my relationship with this. <laughs> Your wife and family live here as well, no? Oh, what a pity if I were forced to correct your house into a massive fire. <laughs> yeah, in the same way that Stalin corrected the membership lists of poetry societies. <laughs> Russia is now in a tricky position, so it, it has a vested interest in Cyprus not collapsing in on itself and taking the full Mad Max scenario. <laughs> and it's not just the the $40 billion in dodgy Russian money that's at stake, because Russia has also been using Cyprus, apparently, to funnel arms to Syria to help Bashar <laughs> al-Assad go explosively medieval on his own people. And as if this couldn't get any crazier, and this might be good news for you, Chris, news broke earlier in the week that the UK flew in a plane stacked with a million euros in cash to Cyprus as a contingency measure for British personnel and their families if cash machines and debit cards should stop working in Cyprus. They loaded a plane with a million euros. Oh, that should calm down everyone in Andy. How could that go wrong? Uh, There's a plane somewhere in the country with a million euros in non-traceable notes. But what you should absolutely not do is form a mob to find that plane and loot it. (laughs) I can't believe they made that public. Like, yeah. hi, hi, everyone. Here's a press release. We've got a plane with a million quid on it. There must be a decoy. <laughs> they must have been bringing a ship with 20 million in on the other side. Of the <laughs> that might be true. We'll just uh, show, John, that, uh, you know, around the world, I think trust in the banking industry is at an all-time low. In Britain, people are uh, increasingly miffed, particularly at RBS, a largely public-owned bank, still posting big losses and still paying big bonuses on the grounds that the losses aren't as big as they could be if we didn't pay such big bonuses. And that's basically how it works. Essentially, we are rewarding people for punching us in the face, but for doing so less hard than we're used to being punched in the face and when the alternative is being smashed on the head with an anvil. And the whole situation in Cyprus, when we see you know, the raids on you know, just, just low-level savings accounts, just continue to give the impression... Not that we are just dust in the wind of history, but that we are custard powder in the explosive flatulence of economics. And <laughs> when it goes wrong, we're the ones who get burnt and the whole thing stinks. <laughs> so all of it, even as we speak right now, apparently Cyprus is, is hours away from a key vote on whether to go with whatever new package they're trying to negotiate or not. But essentially... Cyprus is right now standing, teetering on the edge of a fiscal cliff, about to take a budgetary bungee jump. <laughs> the Bank of Cyprus, the largest bank there, has said that the Cypriot economy is on the brink and desperately requires a liquidity lifeline, going on to say that the next move may prove its salvation or destruction. And the European Central Bank has given the nation until Monday to raise the funds it needs to secure a bailout, and if no plan B can be found, they may cut off funding to the island's banks, which will likely trigger their collapse and possibly the country's exit from the euro. And that is when pandemonium will be unleashed. And I am not talking about the popular new Japanese boy band featuring a bunch of kids dressed as pandas. <laughs> so, so where next for Cyprus? Well, a new plan could include restructuring other Cypriot banks, maybe the use 
of pension funds, which would be like trying to put out a fire by throwing petrol at it, uh, or, or otherwise maybe accepting the offer of some help from Cyprus's wealthy Orthodox Church. But perhaps the most audacious and, again, slightly frightening offer of all came from Gazprom, the gigantic, and I mean f***ing gigantic, Russian gas company. Because they have offered to bail out the entire country of Cyprus in one go, on their own, which wouldn't be difficult. Cyprus only needs around a 13 billion uh, bailout, and Gazprom makes around 160 billion dollars a year. So they could probably bail out Cyprus with the loose change they find in their Siberian tiger rugs. <laughs> and all Gazprom wants in return, Andy, for this national bailout is for Cyprus to give it the exploration rights to the potential gas deposits in the Mediterranean. It's such a friendly offer. That is all we require from you, Cyprus. We would love nothing more than to help you out in your time of need. And we require in return nothing more than your delicious gas. Now, would you like to sign this contract, or shall I rip off your fingers, wrap them around this pen, and sign it for you? I am fine with doing it either way. <laughs> well, that has got, that's got to be featuring in... Uh an animated movie at some point, that voice, John. Russian mobster Smurf, yeah. Andy, for Smurf 3. <laughs> Got to make it more topical. The point is, <laughs> Cyprus is fucked. <laughs> Middle East news now, and uh, President Obama has been in Israel and Palestine this week. Uh, what a great way to relax and get away from political difficulties back home, Andy. What better way than by travelling to the biggest political cluster f- on the planet? I'm, I'm sure he'll come back fully recharged, or at least saying, holy shit, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's actually great to be back. Uh, his relationship with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been strained, famously strained over the last four years. And uh, he tried to lighten the mood immediately when uh, he landed in Israel. Cameras caught him making a light-hearted... Reference to Netanyahu's warning of a red line uh, with Iran's nuclear program when they were visiting a military site. Apparently, President Obama asked a military official, you know, where, where do you want to start? And the military official replied, oh, we're following the red line, sir, re- referring to a red line on the tarmac. Obama then replied, oh, the red line, OK. And then smiled and gestured with his thumb towards Netanyahu and said, he's always talking to me about red lines. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's funny, Andy, because Israel is desperate to launch a preemptive strike on Iran, uh, and we don't want that. That's that's why it's funny, Andy, and, and it's it's even fun, it's even funnier because we've been surreptitiously killing all the Iranian nuclear scientists instead. That's what makes it really hilarious, Andy. Oh, oh, that's just good stuff. Yeah. Maybe you had to be there. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, President Obama wasn't actually the only one taking a different approach to diplomacy as King Abdullah of Jordan (laughs) spent a recent interview essentially zinging every single leader in the Middle East. It was a really amazingly refreshing approach. He said that Mohamed Morsi in Egypt has no depth. He described (laughs) Prime Minister uh, Erdogan of Turkey as an authoritarian who views democracy as, I quote, a bus ride, as in, once I get to my stop, I'm getting off. (laughs) When asked about uh, Bashar al-Assad of Syria, he said he's so provincial that at a social dinner he once asked the monarchs of Jordan and Morocco to explain jet lag to him, saying (laughs) he'd never heard of jet lag. He... Even took on his own family, saying 
members of my own family don't get it. Look at some of my brothers. They believe they're princes, but my cousins are more princes than my brothers, and their in-laws are like, oh, my God. I'm... <laughs> I'm always having to stop members of my family from putting lights on their guard cars. I arrest members of my family and take their cars away from them and cut off their fuel rations and make them stop at traffic lights. And he then dismissed tribal leaders from the east bank of the Jordan River, who've traditionally been his own family's base of support, calling them old dinosaurs. Zing! Andy, they just got king zinged! Again, at least... This is a new approach to diplomacy. <laughs> Insult comedy. It's, it's got to be worth it's a, a try. It's exactly. Let's let's fly Don Rickles over the Middle East, hanging off a helicopter in a special harness, with a microphone in one hand and a loudspeaker in the other, zinging the shit out of the leader of every country he passes. Hey, Morsi! If a thought ever crossed your mind, it must have been a long and harrowing journey. Boom! <laughs> hey. Netanyahu, you're more stubbornly rigid than a dead donkey. God ding! Hey, Lebanese President Suleiman, look at your face. Was anyone else hurt in that accident? Aloha! Hey, Hammy Karzai, I'll never forget the first time we met, but I'm sure as hell gonna keep trying. Kaplawi! <laughs> it's gotta be worth it, Andy. Yeah. Some charming rickle singers. And Berlusconi's pretty much tried that in uh, in Europe, certainly with uh, Angela Merkel. This. He went a little hard. Yeah. He went. A, he went a little. That was less Rickles and more Lisa Lampanelli <laughs> to call a major world leader an unfuckable lardass. <laughs> it's, look, that, that that is going heavy. That's edgy stuff. <laughs> Let's start with Rickles before we move on to that stuff. British media news now, and finally, a deal has been struck between the three main political parties on how to regulate the press uh, in the aftermath of the Leveson inquiry into the phone hacking schmozzle. And finally, John, it was uh, an almost unique example of cross-party cooperation to provide a balanced solution suitable for all the varying snouts in the political dung heap. At last, (laughs) the bickering squawk of British politics had moderated to a harmoniously unified toot. It all seemed reassuringly mature of our much maligned political system. And then as soon as they'd reached this cordial agreement, they all started claiming credit for it, saying it was my (laughs) idea, it was definitely not your idea, it was definitely my idea. And then they even started arguing over exactly what it was they'd agreed to anyway. It was British democracy at its shit best. Um, (laughs) And people immediately started discussing the implications of the deal that had been struck. Will it, as the New York Times suggested, chill free speech in Britain, as well as threatening smaller publishers, bloggers and the like, which I guess, John, could include podcasts. Under the new regulations, would we, on the bugle, Britain's one remaining properly sharpened sword of truth, be able to claim that... ...had got together with... ...and they had jointly... uh, ...whilst... And the horse were ing, and whilst a prominent member of the clergy, only 14, <laughs> and into his with her. I mean, will we still be able to make those claims? Oh, shit. Even if they're t- true. I mean, I guess they- <laughs> we'll just have to put it out there, John. And see whether or not it gets censored before it goes if up. If they ever start bleeping that stuff, Andy, the bugle is finished. 
So does it truly overturn 300 years of press freedom in Britain, as some people have suggested, or does it just slightly nudge it? Some, uh, some sections of the media are concerned that the new agreement will significantly curtail their ability to behave like total <laughs> which could have serious <laughs> implications for their circulation. <laughs> As Leveson himself said, a free press is one of the true safeguards of democracy. And that is undeniably true, but the problem is the way the press has been behaving in this country. A free press is also one of the biggest threats to democracy as well. And some people said this was a sad day for press freedom. Well, I think the sad day for press freedom was when the press took their freedom, chained it to a radiator in a secret sex dungeon wearing a gimp mask, (laughs) and told that freedom to call it Mistress Spankhammer. (laughs) The problem is that the press, given the power and responsibility to regulate itself, uh, has applied that power and responsibility very much in the same way that a child self-regulates with a tambourine, i.e. somewhere between completely incompetently and not at all, and to the significant detriment of everyone around it. They've self-regulated in the same way that a 19th century British person used to self-regulate when left alone in a jungle clearing with A, a massive gun, B, a sleeping tiger, and C, the knowledge that back home there was a big empty space next to the fire that was just crying out for a new rug. But fundamentally, the greatest problem is that if you want someone to regulate the press, the two groups you least want to do it are A, the press, and B, politicians. And they are the only two groups with the power to actually do it, or at least (laughs) to pretend that they're actually doing it. (laughs) Two of the least trusted social groups in the country looking after one of its most precious possessions. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, Many of the uh, major newspapers involved said they needed... Time to study the details of this before commenting fully. And that's unlike them, Andy, because that's the kind of attention to detail and commitment to rigorous journalism that I thought they'd long since been immune to. And <laughs> you know what? Maybe, maybe they've really changed from this, Andy. Maybe yeah. we got them wrong and maybe maybe they've really learned some powerful lessons and they've... Hold on, what's that clicking sound on my phone? Fu- <laughs> I'm getting... They're hacking me, Andy! They're hacking me again! <laughs> Budget news now, and uh, well, George Osborne uh, announced to the nation his uh, his latest shoving the pennies around the empty pint pots uh, for the nation, and in the biggest move of the budgets this time, beer, the price of beer has come down by one pence per pint. Wow! And. It is quite possible that this single measure could save the entire national economy. Uh, the reduction in the beer price starts from this Sunday. And George Osborne says, said, I expect it to be passed on in full to customers. one <laughs> 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 fee. Bear in mind, that is the smallest uh, amount of money we now have in this country since the half fee was ditched about 30 years ago. <laughs> He's in full, John. In he's, full. He's personally bought every British citizen half a thimble full of beer. <laughs> Cheers. I've, I've done the uh, I've done the maths on this, John. Um, oh yeah. So over the course of a year, mm-hmm. you could save forty eight pounds fifty eight pence. Wow! If you drink fifteen <laughs> pints of beer a day. <laughs> but there is a flip side to this, because yeah. if you drink fifty bottles of wine in a week you're going to be £243 worse off. And if you drink three bottles of whiskey a night, you're 461 quid worse off over the course of a year. So just to balance the savings, this is about what I'm losing on my wine and whiskey. I'm going to have to drink 218 pints of beer a day. I'm not a doctor, but that sounds risky, John. 
Thanks for crunching those numbers, <laughs> Andy. That's really illuminating. At Hackney Prices, it yeah. basically means that you can drink 400 pints for the price of 399 Oh, that is... I expect to see that yeah. sign going outside the front of every pub. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the various tinkering around with the uh, tax brackets, um, dropping the top-level rate of tax for the, <laughs> for the poor... Super wealthy have been struggling so grievously in recent times. And uh, again, they have this budget calculation on the BBC website, and I put it in. And apparently this budget is quite good news for me. It's actually going to make me £4.9 million a year better off. (laughs) I I mean, I did slightly over-exaggerate my earnings, but, you know, £100 a year, I reckon that's not that far off, is it? No. But I was, I was already putting in, I was, I was imagining what your, your earnings are, John, after Smurfs 2 hits the screens. <laughs> oh, it's going to be huge, Andy. It's Trumpian level. Uh, th- this is a, reportedly going to be great news for the struggling brewing industry in Britain after apparently 10,000 pubs uh, have closed in the last decade in Britain. And the, uh, the real ale drinkers group, Camera, welcomed the news with a statement saying it was brilliant and momentous and... Great <laughs> and, and just fantastic, and it's just meant so much to us. We really feel special. It's nice. It's nice to feel that way because no one has reached out to us in like that in a l- long time. And we, I'm just, we were just going to go to the toilet to be just a very little bit sick for a second, <laughs> and we'll, we'll be right back. And who's r- round is it next? <laughs> Your emails now, and this one comes from Ben, and in fact many, many others via email and tweet, uh, who have picked up on something that uh, a Bugle favourite of recent weeks has tweeted. Who writes, I was just cruising through the Iron Shake's latest tweets and discovered a dig at the Smurfs. He wrote... Wait, what? Yeah. Well, I mean, John, you're taking on the big guns here now, mate. <laughs> you put yourself out there, you're going to be shot at. Family guy, iron shake class, but Smurfs, no good. Motherfucker, low life. <laughs> Sm- Sm- Smurfs, no good. Motherfucker, low life. Yeah, that sounds like a one-star just, review to me, John. He's a, yeah, he's just such, he's a linguistic maverick. That guy, he will not <laughs> obey the laws of language or punctuation. I think he's deflecting yet- away from the meats of his. Uh, of his <laughs> <laughs> You know, we don't know, Andy, because you haven't seen it yet. You haven't, you haven't seen the first one. All right, neither have I. So the point is, neither of us are qualified to comment on that. John, if I did not comment on things I do not know about, this would be an extremely short podcast. <laughs> when is the second one coming out? Or is it out already? Has it been no, gone? Uh, I, think, I think it's out this summer, Andy. All right. Summer 2013, it's going to be huge. Smurfs 2, it's called. In fact, uh, (laughs) Matilda, my daughter, asked uh, the other day, she said, what's a Smurf? Oh, well, summer 2013, she's about to find out, Andy. Well, she's about to find out if you fling us a decent load of merch for it, John. (laughs) (laughs) On the subject of merch, the Bugle merch, uh, it's been given the all clear. I'm just waiting for confirmation as to when it's actually going to be on sale. But um, hopefully within the next... Week, two weeks. I think I've been saying that for four Just or five weeks. Just say next decade, yeah, and then you're covered. Then we, then we then we won't lie to people. The point again. is, all you buglers are not going to have to go shirtless for much longer. Smurfs <laughs> two, summer 2013, bugle merch, summer 2014. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have another email here from Matthew Wilson, which is basically a photo, 
And uh, the caption of the photo is, he's the monsieur of mirth, the ayatollah of rock and roller, the pope with the straight dope, Zoltor the first. <laughs> All praise him. Zoltor imitesque unus. Amen. Uh, basically, it is a spectacular photo of Andy as the new Pope with me as a slightly creepy cardinal behind him <laughs> walking through the streets of the Vatican. And it's, uh, you're going to tweet it out, aren't you, Andy? Yeah, we'll put it up on uh, it's very, yeah. It's very... Fu- it looks... I it looks I could, plausible. I think I, think I it carry looks, it off pretty well, actually. You look good. You yeah. look... Like a Pope, Andy. It and looks like I've shed a few ama- pounds as well. <laughs> that is amazing to say for a Jewish man. <laughs> That's how it all began, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was I was really hoping they would go back to basics and have a kind of, you know, late 20s, early 30s Jewish man with a rippling six-pack. <laughs> so we'll put that up. Chris will put it on the website and uh, Facebook. Yeah. Yes, I will. I'm a bit out of the loop with Facebook. Yep. But I'll, I'm, uh, I'm pleased you know it exists. Yeah, yeah. I'll pop it on Twitter when I am uh, get the chance. Do keep your emails coming in to info at thebuglepodcast.com. Uh, don't forget you can check out our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. And if you have not yet volunto subscribed to the bugle to keep uh, keep the bugle going for all eternity, please do so at thebuglepodcast.com or we will hunt you down and kill you. Well, that's about it for this week's uh, Bugle. And in fact, for the next two weeks, we're going to be off uh, for Easter and for John to go to Australia. Yeah, I've just, I have um, to go to Australia for a few days to shoot yeah. a piece. That's a f- of a long way to go, Andy, <laughs> for a few days. <laughs> but still, I'm doing it. And uh, I must actually put out an apology to our Australian listeners because um, there's been total mayhem in Australia with their government. Uh, yes, that's true. To, Coups, and more importantly, from an English perspective, with their cricket team, uh, when they dropped four players for basically failing to give in their written homework to the coach. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's been a spectacular time for Australia as a nation, but we haven't had time to cover it, and now we've got two weeks off. But uh, I think we'll rectify that uh, in the next full bugle in uh, hopefully three weeks' time. So maybe I you think- can rectify it while you're there, John. Well, also, the people of Australia need to understand that a bloodless coup is not an interesting coup. Okay? You got to, this. Yes, they've had a spectacular amount of coups, but we really have to see some blood in the streets for it to make the news. You just you got to give people something visual. Uh, we're off next week for Easter, uh, the anniversary of the uh, certified donkey fan Jesus Christ being literally banged to rights. Uh, Successful prosecution. Yeah. Took a real hammering, um, the uh, oh, former carpenter no. and homebrew enthusiast. But what a year for Easter to happen, John, uh, 2013. Because yep. um, we, of course, ex- reported exclusively on the uh, coronation of the new Pope. And this week, we had a new Archbishop of Canterbury inaugurated as well. And you can't help thinking, John, Easter's, yeah, that's a big deal for uh, the Christian canon. They are going to both want to stamp their mark on things. And I think there's a big possibility of a huge Easter showdown. Brand new Pope, brand new Canterbury. They're going to have it out once and for all. Is it pretend blood? Is it real blood? The world will find out. Welby <laughs> versus Bergoglio. Refereed by the MD and owner of their rival franchises. Almighty God, can Bergoglio give Welby a proper Catholicking? Or Angley can Welby put his Roman rival on the ecclesiastic canvas? Or Angley can't he? Either way, it's Easter. Someone is going to get cross. <clears throat> Tune in next time. Ha, ha, ha.
and have the happiest of all possible Easter. Do you wish people happy Easter or not? It's sad Easter, isn't it? Is it sad? Sad then happy, I yeah. guess. You do. You, you or, wish Jews happy yeah, Easter. Jews happy then sad, <laughs> I guess. Cost us a lot of market share. Bad memories. Bad memories. But guilty. Definitely guilty. Under the laws of the day, Andy. That's right. Don't judge him by today's standards. Uh, thanks for listening, Buglers. We'll be back <laughs> with... Uh, we'll have we'll have supplementary episodes in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Hopefully, by the time we next do a full Bugle, the merch will be there, and you will yeah. be parading around with your Bugle mugs on your heads, drinking coffee out of your Bugle baseball caps, and um, sleeping in your Bugle T-shirts. <laughs> Until then, goodbye. Bye! Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.